0: viewing now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, how did I get into theater? That's the question. Um, well, I, I did always have a relationship with theater, as, even as a child. I, I think you know one of the stories I tell is my very first exposure to live theater. I was six years old. I saw a production of um, the, the Hatfields and the McCoys, which was oh, an outdoor yeah. drama, and this was about 1972 and um it was thrilling and terrifying and all those kinds of emotions that you might have watching a piece of theater except i was six years old and i remember when there were violent moments in that play because it's about a deadly family feud Uh, it was terrifying to see people shooting each other and it was so real and i remember the uh woman um, nina uh, she was actually from the philippines and it was she and her husband uh, who was a baptist minister that took us to this but i remember nina saying they're just they're just playing they're just it's just play acting it's just play acting uh, so that helped kind of soothe me a little bit because, you know, even as a young kid, I was watching shows like Bonanza and kind of, you know, you, you see it on television. But when it's live before you, it was much more terrifying. And, of course, I grew up on a black and white television set. So yeah. <laughs> seeing things in color was was really crazy. And then, you know, we moved to Nashville. And my favorite part of every year all through elementary school was going to the children's theater. I absolutely adored one because we were out of classes and yeah. <laughs> we were going to see theater. But I, I always found that children's theater to be very engaging. And the Nashville Children's Theater is one of the oldest and one of the best-known children's theaters in the country, really. Um, so I had that experience and that love for it. Also, I grew up on old films um, because my parents both loved, uh, uh, you know, cinema. And. Um, and so a big part of our household again this is the days before cable and streaming and all of that you might have three channels and there might be a weekend movie right and so we would that was always a big excitement was to watch uh, um, you know whatever the big movie was for that particular weekend um, and again oftentimes this, these would be old films from the thirties, forties, and fifties, and sixties that were predated my existence. And so I was being exposed to certainly John Wayne and J- James Cagney and Katherine Hepburn and Betty Davis and kind of those old golden era Hollywood people. And so, and my family, again, to my parents' credit, they, they loved going to the movies. So we would go to the movies, uh, as a kind of a family treat. And so I was always kind of enthralled with, uh, with, with, storytelling and, and watching images and those types of things. Uh, I did not participate in it though, other than as an audience member uh, in, you know, I might have been in a skit in Cub Scouts, but I, I never was pursuing actor training or wasn't a part of the drama club in high school. Um, I, had turned my attention to other things besides that for sure that I probably should have turned my attention to. Um, and then I went into the military. I was in the Air Force right out of high school because I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I would have failed out of college. Uh, I hadn't really thought about theater as a calling or that you could even major in theater. You know, it was that was never explained to me. Um, and um, when I finally did get out of the Air Force and I knew I wasn't cut out for, uh, I don't know, that kind of busting your back kind of work and uh, I I knew I must have some kind of creativity in me. Uh, I decided, I found out, there's a theater major. I'm going to be a theater major. Uh, Really with, I think I knew the whole time I wanted to be an actor, but again you, uh, my impulse was my brother was an artist. I didn't want to be another artist and follow his footsteps. He had gone in the military, <laughs> you know. So I felt like I was following his his path on some level, although he was a visual artist. Um, but uh, so I started out, you know, I was building sets. I was taking lighting design. I was uh, still in the back of my head, I knew I wanted to be an actor. I had my first audition experience, uh, like my first year in college. I didn't know what a monologue was. It was for the musical hair. I had grown my hair out really long because when I got out of the Air Force, I was like, I'm never wearing my hair short again, ever. Um, and I didn't know how to prepare a song. I I was a pretty good mover because I'd been an athlete in high school, but I knew nothing about dance. There was no dance training in my background. So not knowing a mon- how to do a monologue, not knowing how to find a monologue, not knowing how to properly prepare a song for uh, for um, uh, an audition situation, all of those things uh, led to probably one of the most humbling and humiliating experiences of my life, which was my very first audition. Um, I I thought I was going to pass out. I sang the second verse wrong and when I was singing it was literally it was this loud I was singing here comes the sun. We had to sing a 60s song from uh, rock and roll because it was hair so I was singing George Harrison here comes the sun and it I was barely audible. It was terrible. And then we had the dance part where we had choreographed. Uh, we'd learned some choreography, and I had some of it down, but you know, I, I didn't master all the steps. And I remember during that audition, Deborah Anderson, who was my mentor in undergrad, she actually said from the seats watching the dance audition, "Daryl, are you doing your own choreography?" And I was like, "Hell yeah!" You know, because was, you know, hair's about hippies, so I was at least being rebellious. And it was just really a terrible experience all the way around. And I remember after the cast list for hair went up, of course I wasn't on it. And I knew I wasn't going to be on it. And I uh, talked with Deborah, and her uh, comment to me was, Daryl, I I, I really wanted to cast you because you got beautiful hair. You have great energy, but you can't sing, dance or act. And that was a real blow to my ego and self-esteem. But I knew by that point I really wanted to be an actor. There were so many um, um, students in that program at that time that I just recognized they had tons of talent. And so I went on this journey of one, trying to watch what they were doing and try to understand how they were making choices. Uh, definitely changed my focus into acting and in my first acting class, I made a C. <laughs> I, was, I was still trying to learn, going to auditions, still failing miserably. And then finally, I did get cast in my first kind of big show at the university uh, and I got so many heartwarming and heartfelt congratulations and that i did a good job and that i was moving to other people in the audience uh, when they you know were talking to me after having seen the show and uh, that gave me the confidence that i could continue on doing this thing and then i also continued my training not because i wasn't successful getting cast a lot as doing stage management. I learned so much by stage management. I had more stage managing credits than I did acting credits by the time I graduated undergrad, uh, but I learned so much about acting and direction, good direction, bad direction, good acting, bad acting, and that whole process of the running of the show and all of those things. So I, I, I think I credit a lot of my training both although I was taking classes, but both as a director and as an actor uh, with being a stage manager. But my senior year, I was about to graduate. I thought I was probably going to continue on as a stage manager and not really pursue acting, but I did get cast in a show. which to me solidified that I could be as good as anybody else at this acting thing. And that was a play called uh, The Widow's Blind Date by the uh, late playwright Israel Horovitz. And again, that was a uh, another production where after the show people were really kind of amazed at the work I had done and were very just gushing with all kinds of congratulations and and just really built my confidence. And uh, I thought, I'm, I can go to graduate school for this. Um, so when I decided I was going to pursue graduate school to continue with my actor training, I remember I, I, I talked to Deborah Anderson again. And I said, I'm, I'm going for these uh, graduate school auditions. Can, can you give me some advice on you know auditioning and what I might want to do? And she she gave me another blow to my ego, and said, "Daryl, I cast you, and you've been great in the shows that have cast you in, particularly once you get into the role, but you audition for shit. I had not really mastered the technique of putting out a really good audition, and um, so here I was graduating, learning that I don't audition very well, and I'm like, "How am I going to get into these graduate schools?" and uh, literally. One thing that I, I knew was probably lacking in my process as a, as a developing actor, uh, part of that audition technique was spending enough time rehearsing my pieces, um, which, you know, that discipline was still lacking in me. And um, so Forrest, when, when I decided I was gonna go for these graduate school auditions, I literally, uh, I would get home from work and between the time that my uh, girlfriend at the time, my current wife, was she was in graduate school for, for art. Uh, between the time that she was uh, out at school and before she would come home, I literally would lock myself in, in the bedroom, have a full length mirror in front of it, and I ran my audition pieces. One was a piece from... Um, um, much Ado About Nothing. It's that Benedict uh, um, um, speech about uh, uh, Claudio getting married, and how- oh, I, do, uh, much <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. do much wonder. Yeah, uh, I do much wonder piece, and uh, then another piece from a wonderful play uh, by, um, oh shoot, it's not really important the name of the play right now, um, uh, but uh, it was a contemporary piece, and so I had a contemporary piece and a comedic Shakespeare piece, and I, I literally weeks and weeks and weeks going up to this audition process. I was in there just drilling myself and dis- making discoveries and kind of all those things that I hadn't mastered in undergrad. And I went to the audition. I got a few callbacks for graduate schools. And I was I was fortunate enough to get into uh, the master's uh, program at University of Southern Mississippi. And I've never looked back since.
1: So now I know that you had your upbringing, you kind of were exposed to, you know, preaching quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Do you think that influenced your demeanor as an actor? Oh, sure.
0: I think, you know, again, my father was a, uh, uh, he was actually a prison chaplain, uh, but he he uh, would preach at a small um, a country church. And we would literally drive an hour on Sundays to get to this church way out in the middle of uh, rural Tennessee. And, uh, so, uh, yes, and then he would preach, and so, yes, that performative aspect of being a preacher in front of a congregation was something I was seeing, uh, you know, my father do, and so obviously public speaking and all of those things that you need to be successful in that field of being a, a, a minister uh, were all parts of uh, of my upbringing, and certainly You know, it's storytelling in its own sense. In essence, it's a monologue of sorts, you know, whether you're talking about gospel or trying to bring a contemporary story that has, you know, a a Jesus-like message in it, those types of things. Uh, I heard him preach all the time and going to church and not only hearing my father preach, but hearing other preachers do their work. Uh, yeah, I don't know that I was necessarily connecting that to my performative life as an actor and now as a teacher and all of those types of things, uh, because oftentimes you hear your father preach enough, you kind of sleep through the sermons, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so that was a big part of going, uh, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, he, he, he would use storytelling quite a bit uh, outside of Bible storytelling, right? Um, and, and as part of his ministry. Um, and there's actually a really lovely story uh, called um, um, Barrington Bunny that he would tell. It's a really kind of nice um, Easter story, but it's the story of a, a, a rabbit and that he gives his life basically for others with no strings attached, right? Which yeah. is the message of, of Jesus. Um, um, so yeah, he was certainly a performer
1: of sorts. So, well, I mean, I asked that because like growing up, I <clears throat> when I would go to church, that's kind of where I learned a lot of um, kind of timing uh, is sure. from my priest because he would always kind of, he'd have a very deliberate way of speaking. He would like have these pauses and I've kind of, in I've like imbued that kind of into my own performance life. So I always wondered, you know, a lot of times people, they have influences on their performance life, you know, very early mm-hmm. on. Um, now, kind of a, I guess like a fun question, um, I, as a performer, I think, you know, you probably have an idea, um, but most people have had, at some point or other, something go wrong on stage or something kind of unpredictable happen, be that good or bad or funny or serious, uh, what what would you say is maybe the most memorable thing that, because that I mean, that's the nature of live theater is the unpredictability of it sometimes. Uh, sure. So...
0: Um, you know, one even before I kind of got my first big role that I consider kind of the, my moment where I kind of came into the world as an actor and that was uh, again it was a really cool play about the vietnam era called tracers i love that play and it means that play really means a lot to me still but before that you know i was doing some a few small community theater things and uh, we had a children's theater class that i took in undergrad and uh, part of that class was that the class we broke into a couple different groups and each little group wrote a about a half hour children's uh, theater play okay. that we were going to produce as part of the class as well. And I remember uh, this this play that was written by a couple of my classmates. Uh, it was a wonderful little play. I mean, I thought it was really good for a student play. But uh, I got to play the menacing... Um, kind of tiger in the woods that attacks the princess, right? And so I had this big kind of mascot tiger head on or a lion head on. And uh, those things are hard to see out of. And I had to every day part of that was uh there was chase the princess and so there would be a chase around the stage and then there were steps at the stage and then we would come down off the steps into the aisles we would chase up through the lobby and then come down the other side and she would be chasing me on the second part of the chase right and i was running right but i remember the the biggest mishap in that particular play, and it was my first theatrical mishap was uh, coming down those steps off the stage into those aisles. Um, I missed the step, and so I had a pretty. It was a pretty good fall, you know. It was probably about four feet, maybe, and I, I turned my ankle really badly. And I, I'm glad I didn't cuss because the, <laughs> the kids would have heard it. But I, it it did. It really it hurt terribly and um but i remembered okay i've still got to chase the princess so i'm blimping up across the aisle and then we got um into the lobby and uh she, the, the young woman playing the princess realized that something bad had happened to me and she was waiting for me. She's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I was like, let's just get this. Fr- I didn't say friggin', I said the other word, but I said, let's just get this friggin' scene over. And I handed her the sword that I was chasing her with and she chased me back and I'm limping. And yeah, that was uh, that was a pretty memorable thing because it was my first big accident and the first time I'd really been on a stage. And so what did I do? I fell off the stage. How embarrassing is that? Um, so that was a huge, uh, huge <laughs> thing that happened in that particular production. Uh, I've had other moments where I've been on stage and maybe things didn't happen to me, but I've, I've seen, uh, um, I was in, actually in a production of Hatfields and McCoys and course, there's lots of hand-to-hand combat, and, and one of, I was in the scene, but I wasn't doing any of the fighting, but one of the characters ended up getting his thumb jabbed. It was a knife fight, and he ended up getting his, he was blocking um, uh, one of the, the choreographed stabs, right, but he stuck his thumb out, and he got his thumb broken during, during the show, uh, and I was understudying that character uh, in another play, so... <laughs> I had to step in and and play that part uh, while while he was getting uh, healing uh, for a couple of days before he came back on with, you know, he was wearing a cast at that point. Uh, So that was another kind of weird thing that happened uh, that, yeah, it didn't necessarily – I didn't get hurt or anything, but I did have to fill in because an actor did get hurt. Um, And, you know, again, stage combat, well, you know, I mean – there's always a chance no matter what safety precautions. We do fight calls and all those things. It was choreographed very well and it was meant to be safe but it was just an accident that happened in that particular instance. Um, Other times I I can't really think of major things. Uh, Actually my senior year, when I did a widow's blind date, there was there was a uh, mishap in that particular production too. But uh, you know, we worked through it. You know, stay in the moment. Uh, I believe there was also a moment in that run where I went up online. It was just two people on stage, and my partner could see my fear <laughs> in my eye. That oh. Daryl's lost Daryl's lost (laughs) I and and he so he fed me a line to keep the scene moving along but the thing was is we jumped several pages and there was some key exposition and so we I went we went along with it and then I realized by the time we got through that unit that we skipped to, I was like, we got to go back and pick up this exposition, otherwise the rest of the play's is not going to make very much sense. So we kind of put reordered the play that night. Uh, uh, so we, we got in the information, but it just came in the wrong order. Uh, mm-hmm. that, was, that was really terrifying when that kind of thing happens. Um, sure.
1: Hmm. So um, as someone who's about to, I guess, finish undergrad here in about six days um, or seven days, I guess, uh, what you know? Describe to me what was what was your grad school like? What was that experience like for you? Well,
0: that was uh, one. I don't know. It was it was thrilling to be you know invited to a graduate program on an assistantship and those types of things. I had taken a summer job right before uh, the semester. Or that that summer that I started graduate school, and I literally showed up the very first day. Classes I hadn't started yet, but it was like they were having the big departmental meeting. I didn't know anybody, and I had been working doing actually technical theater at a camp up in Pennsylvania. So I had been traveling from Pennsylvania all the way down to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and I was kind of worn out and frazzled, and I was terrified and didn't know anybody. And uh, So yeah, that was not the best way to start my graduate school life. Um, and I, I remember my, again, my first audition for that, that, you know, that the fall auditions were there at the beginning of that semester and there were a couple shows and I was interested in them and I, I you know, I felt like I'd prepared a, a good general audition. Uh, had a couple callbacks for some of the shows and i ended up not getting cast i'm like here i am in grad school my first semester and i didn't get cast in fact i don't think i got cast in a a show my first year of grad school and that was really frustrating and i again i had those self-doubts about am i doing the right thing do i have the talent for all of this Uh, but i knew i did by then uh, but i was working on things i got cast uh actually my first year it wasn't uh Uh, any of the university productions, but I did get cast in um, a series of uh, convenience market commercials that were airing in the local regional area for... um, Uh, the channel, uh, the NBC affiliate for Southern Mississippi. Is that what you showed us in the film class? Right. Yeah. So, so those, those gave me a sense of success, you know, that, okay, I didn't get cast in some unpaid gig at grad school, you know, (laughs) but I'm getting paid to be a commercial actor now. Uh, so, um, and I, I ended up doing those for three years and I was getting paid for every commercial that, that I did. And, um, um, yeah, you know, so I, I kind of had a, a, a an ongoing gig throughout grad school doing those, and and you know finally it got I I was getting cast in shows again and uh, you know sowing my oats and all of that that you do in grad school. Um, And, uh, you know, again, very thankful for that opportunity. I earned my MFA. My thesis show was the wonderful play, Speed the Plow, by David Mammoth, which is an extreme, any David Mammoth's really extremely difficult, uh, just the way it's written, the rhythms, and and that type of thing. But um, I got to do Streetcar Named Desire, which was a, uh, I didn't get to play Stanley, which is the part (laughs) I wanted, but I did get to play Mitch and, you kind of realize Mitch is kind of goes on the biggest journey in the whole play, in my opinion. <laughs> he's, the, uh,
1: he's like the gentleman caller, isn't he? Well,
0: no, well, the gentleman caller's uh, uh, Glass Menagerie, of course, but he is the love interest for Blanche Dubois, who Stanley torments, and yeah, she's going he, on. He, kind of... he ends up. He falls in love with her, but then his heart gets broken because of he discovers the truth about her from Stanley, yeah. and and treats her badly too. He really does treat uh, Blanche very badly in that play. But at the end of the day, you know Stanley's always kind of a jerk. Uh, Blanche is kind of on that far. She's she's on her way. You know, suffering from depression and the loss of her family and her fragility's breaking all throughout the course of the play but mitch is kind of steady and puts his heart out there and ends up getting broken and by the end he i think he's probably more crushed than certainly uh, stanley and stella's pretty crushed at the loss of her sister Uh, but I, i really do i think mitch in a lot of ways kind of goes on the biggest emotional journey through the course of that play. Uh, and it's a great supporting part. Um, but uh, that was a part um, when I was younger, when I was still of the age. I, Stanley Kowalski was a part I've always wanted to play, but uh, I've, I've aged out of that, of that role. I'm long in the tooth for that part. you big fan of the movie? Uh, Oh, I love the film. Yeah, you can't, you can't deny you know, the brilliance of all the actors in that production. In fact, um, I, I think all of the, all the four, two leads and the two supporting actors, they all got nominated, and um, two of them won <laughs> uh, Oscars for the part. Uh, but we were fortunate. We had a guest artist come in, and he had been working uh, professionally. Uh, he was out in New York City. He had been doing lots of regional theater. He had just played Stanley Kowalski at the Pioneer Theater in uh, Utah. Mm. So he had just come off the role and he was coming to uh, Hattiesburg to recreate the role of Stanley in the production so actually getting to meet him and work with him it it, uh, I I got to learn a lot about you know professional theater Uh, he was also done a lot of film and television as well so I was able to have really informative conversations with him and that was one of the nice things too. working with him as I learned a lot but he as someone who had been a professional for years I mean he was a little bit old to play Stanley too in real life but um, um, he was very complimentary of how much he enjoyed working with me and that you know he said he was uh, this was after we had uh wrapped streetcar but i was talking to him a few months later and he said guess what i'm auditioning for i'm like what he said i'm going to audition for for uh, streetcar again and then i was like you are and he's like yes and i was like well that's great and he says you know what daryl you inspired me i want to play mitch <laughs> I was like, great, you've already played Stanley. You might as well at least. He said, no, but your, your interpretation of Mitch was, was very inspiring me to see, see it so well done, and I think I want to take it on. So again, you have these moments where somebody tells you something and it gives you a sense of encouragement and that you have value and worth in this art form that you're always unsure about, right? Yes, you need it, you know
1: because I mean? you, you don't really watch yourself.
0: Right, well, and you know, we, you know, I think we all suffer this in the arts, and maybe not just the arts, but it's that thing we call imposter syndrome. I don't belong here, somehow I'm gonna be found out as, as a fraud or a phony. And so, you know, that's, that's always that self-doubt that creeps in, and I've had that not only as an actor, but I've had it as a director, and I've had it as a teacher. You know, here I am teaching young minds and I feel pretty certain in the knowledge that I'm passing on to them and that I'm giving good instruction and I'm I'm helping uh, give back you know, positive, constructive criticism and helping actors grow. And I feel, oh, I'm good at this. But then I go to like a larger, like a Southeastern Theater Conference and all of these artists from all over the United States and many of them are at universities with more uh, panache than perhaps Murray State University. And they've maybe done more things or they've earned accolades that I haven't. And I'm like, they're gonna find out that I don't know what I'm talking about. But then they always come, you know, professionals, that come in and they watch my workshops. They go, "Oh, that was a really nice workshop. I really appreciate it. And it's like, phew, boy! I pulled the wool over someone else's <laughs> eyes, didn't I?" <laughs> so there is that. That's always, I think, part of our thinking as artists is that that we that stinking thinking, as we call it, that that imposter syndrome kind of sneaks in on all of us. And I can't. I don't know anyone that has never said that they haven't had that experience on some level
1: yeah I mean it's I think especially with like kind of actors because it's just I mean it's so it's one of those things it's like it's hard to gauge quality from the perspective of yourself I guess so it's I mean, that's always been a thing for me. It's like, because every show I do, I still, in the back of my head, I'm like, am I getting any better? Am I any good at all kind of thing? I mean, I didn't, I wasn't going to major in theater until David Balthrop told me. He's like, you can, he's like, you can do this. And I was like, okay, well, sure. Yeah, I'll try it. Yeah. But it's, yeah, I think that's always been a big thing for me is like every time I get some sort of accolade or I do something and someone congratulates me, I'm like, are you sure? Is that really? <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: Well, you know, having worked with you quite a bit, you know, uh, I, I think I think you're wonderfully talented, and I've seen you really grow and develop as an actor. Um, and I'm going to miss working with you in that capacity. I'm
1: going to miss yeah. working with you. <laughs> your shows were your, your shows were always very fun because I mean every, I mean this is true for all directors, but you know the the three directors at Murray State they all you guys all just kind of do things differently. Um, like every, every different, like, you know, being in one of Matt's shows or being in one of your shows or Lisha's shows, it's all a very unique experience. Sure. Um, <clears throat> but going back to, you know, going back to, you know, your directing here and stuff, uh, kind of a question I've always uh, thought about is you have a very, um, very, what's the word? You really imbue your shows with. Soundtracks. You know, that's, a, that's the simplest way to say it. You put music in your shows, and that's not something I've ever really interacted with. So have you always just had a big um, kind of thing for like soundtracking or underscoring? Because, you know, a lot of shows I've been in, that's that's never really been a thing. But I've always mm. enjoyed how in your shows it's almost kind of like it's got that cin- kind of cinematic underscoring in a lot of scenes. Like there's always a lot of music in it. And it's very kind of enhances the whole thing.
0: Well, for, for me, yeah, I think music Well, certainly if we look at uh, Aristotle's six elements of drama, music is certainly one of them, right? Um, and so uh, even if I don't use it a lot in within the show, for me, when I walk into a house as an audience member and there's no music playing it kind of bums me out you know <laughs> even if it's uh, i think there's a line in the importance of being earnest is if you play good music nobody listens to it but if you play bad music no one talks right yeah. uh, and so i like to put the good music on and you can hear the people talking right and it's yeah. like they're not really paying it but it gives a sense of ambiance and i yeah. always like to somehow flavor that expectation of what is in the show w- with how i score the the house music right yeah. um i, I uh, whether it's a time period piece uh or whatever i'm trying to set a set a tone and set a mood mm-hmm. uh and maybe somebody can sit there and appreciate the music if they're not talking to someone but uh, um but that kind of kind of sets up what this evening might be as far as the, the 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 style of the piece or the the mood or the tone of the piece that way and then there are moments i think sometimes within plays uh where pers- especially transitional moments where maybe there's a set change going on uh or maybe there's you know, maybe a break in the unit where you can say, let's, let's you know, the, the event is changing uh, where, you, again, you can funnel in that music. One, it, it kind of helps those set changes bearable. It gives you something to listen to while that, that's going on. I hate long set changes. You know that. Yeah. I like I like the dovetail scenes very quickly and efficiently. Uh, but then there are times where it's like, no, I, I want to uh, give this uh, – um, an emotional I don't want to say emotional lift because the actors ultimately do that and I don't want to distract from the dialogue that's happening in the scene but I found oftentimes when I'm working with actors if I bring in a particular piece of music and we can listen to it and kind of connect with that emotional quality of what is within the music, then the actors oftentimes will take that cue and they kind of discover not only within the playing of the action of the objective, but they can maybe uh, bring a a greater sense of intensity of the emotional stakes of what's in a particular scene. So I I certainly uh, like to find moments within plays, where if it's appropriate, I will perhaps underscore a moment with uh, uh, with the music. But again, never do I want to distract from actor action, objective, and certainly the playwright dialogue, and sometimes that can happen. Um, and sometimes I, I think I'm successful with that and sometimes maybe I, I, I should have just maybe not done it. But uh, that's the choice you make, right? You, you make a choice and you, you live with it and whether it's successful or not, who knows? I, I, I like to think that uh, I do it judiciously and I do it tactfully and I do it tastefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just part of my aesthetic. And part of it is, you know, I grew up watching a lot of films, Mm -hmm. and that's just part of the art form of making something cinematic, right, Um, and using film, but uh, I think audiences, too, um, for the most part, that's kind of an experience they have when most of the time they're going to see uh, something in the movie theater, right, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's part and present of, I think, what the culture already does anyway look at any television show you watch those types of things um there's always some kind of underscoring uh, but you know
1: well um speaking of cinema a lot of actors i think well i, I guess it's kind of how it has to be uh, most actors i assume start with theater live performance acting and then maybe at some point they go on to film acting and usually it's not super common to be the other way around I assume but um you know I did that like you know I did stage all my life and then in college I started doing like short films with friends and stuff and it wasn't really strange trend transition uh the way it feels now you've done stuff on stage for a long time and you've done some stuff on film what was that transition like for you as an actor going from kind of the relative in my opinion the relative freedom of acting on stage to the kind of it's kind of it kind of feels constrained to me to act on camera how does that how did that feel for you and how was that transition for you
0: well you know the big difference is that for stage typically that is more the actor's medium you do have more freedom uh the acting depending on the type of space that you're in is going to either get a little bit more grander in the scale of the representation or the presentation, depending on the style of the play that you're in and the style of acting that's needed for the play. Um, You know, we're here in the Wilson Black Box Theater. You can get more way, you can get away with more subtle acting and much more film kind of technique acting in this kind of space versus what we might do in the Johnson Theater, which seats 350 people, right? Um, So yes, that ability, because I've worked in so many different spaces, some spaces as big as 1,500 seat amphitheater to again, this kind of small 60 seat theater that we're in uh, has allowed me to, you know, understand how to fill each space. Uh, Getting into actually working on camera, you know, this is the one thing I guess, talk about any regrets in careers or choices that we make. because I started teaching at uh, you know the relatively age, I guess it was about 32 or so when I got my first acting uh, teaching job. Um, and I've never looked back from teaching since then, but I, 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 I somehow feel like I didn't really pursue my, I think the big dream that I had in my head as a kid was, you know, maybe being a film actor. I didn't pursue going to Los Angeles and trying my, you know, trying to get an agent and doing that whole thing. Um, I think part of it was just relationship choice that I made. I think my relationship with my wife, who I've been with for almost 30 years now, that probably would have ended if I had made that kind of choice. Uh, But sometimes I look back and say, You should have done it. You could have done this, you you know, Uh, and what evidence do I have of that? Well, I've auditioned for just a handful of films, Um, but I find when I audition for films, I get cast. You know, I I got a pretty good track record, more than on stage. I've been cast probably at least about 90% of the times where I've auditioned for a film, I got the part. And so uh, with that kind of hindsight and thinking, I go, well, I, I, I could have. Done this on film for real in LA. And so I I, I think about that sometimes. But um, for me, because I didn't get a whole lot of film acting until, you know, I was a little bit older and a more seasoned actor, um, it was all very frightening. Because one, I want to come in and be prepared and be professional, all those things that you know you do for the stage. But, um, You know, there's things that I didn't know about film acting. And the films that I worked on, there wasn't a whole lot of direction. It was like, okay, let's run through the scene. Here's some blocking, go and then oh guess what you get to shoot it again and you get to shoot it again and you're going to shoot it again so you can kind of take the pressure off saying you know what if i screw something up it's okay cuz we know we're going to do not that you want ever want to you know mess up a line or do the wrong thing on any take cuz you don't want to be the reason why you have to do another take mm-hmm. but uh, that there is that freedom in knowing we're going to do several takes of this so that kind of takes the pressure off of getting it right every single time, which I think that's where live theater acting is really valuable because you have that one opportunity to get it right in front of that live audience. Um, whereas on film, something goes wrong, fine, we'll do another take. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you don't want to be the reason why, why they're doing different takes, right? You, you still have to be prepared. And it is that you, you realize that you have the microphones right there. The need to project is no longer necessarily all that important. Um, you know, sometimes for a big stage, we we mug with our face. You can't really necessarily do that on film, depending on the style of the film. You know, if you're doing Anchorman, then. Have at it. You can. <laughs> you can be as theatrical as you want with a with a film like that. But if you're doing, uh, I don't know, any serious drama, uh, or even a, a real believable comedy, a true life kind of comedy, then yeah, the acting style has to be, I think, a lot more minimal. And um, for me, you know, as someone who continued my training beyond graduate school, it was like, uh, you know. I learned a lot about the Meisner approach to to acting, Uh, some in grad school, but more so, that was just me wanting to learn more about that particular technique. And, um, you know, I was pretty old, and I was already, you know, had already... Acted in a lot of things and had lots of experience, and I was already teaching acting. I was successful. I feel like as an actor and as a teacher and as a director, but uh, that Meisner training that I did for two years on my own dime um, was really valuable because it one it it taught me how to teach acting differently, and I thought a way that's a lot more accessible and easier for me to teach. Uh, but it also allowed me to discover, I think, a, a better approach for being a film actor because I think Meisner's really great for truthfulness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that truthfulness is really paramount when you're on film. And it's paramount on stage too. but yeah. uh, sometimes you have to, again, play larger than life because you're on on a, you know a larger stage. Uh, playing for more people than the film crew that's around (laughs) and the director who's watching who's watching the monitor the whole time uh, working Um, so but I have been fortunate here in Murray Kentucky where who would have thought there would be any film opportunities you know uh, a couple two or three years ago that's where I, I really got my to fulfill a life dream for me which was getting into a film that was going to get distributed you know because i did several you know kind of independent films throughout my day and nobody ever saw these they never got distributed they who knows if they were ever edited into a a piece that could be called art right um but I, I did get those opportunities, uh, I guess about three years ago, that I was like, hey, I, I've watched them both, you know. <laughs> I saw myself on film and I saw my name roll on the screen and uh, that was exciting for me.
1: Was that pretty surreal? Uh,
0: no, but it was, you know, even though they were, they were support, supporting roles, they weren't huge parts or anything, but it, it, was, it was exciting. You know, I don't know if it was surreal, but it was exciting. And, of course, you're watching yourself on film going, oh, God, I suck. <laughs> wow, how did they cast me? But the whole time, everyone there is assuring you that it's, that it's watching on monitors. And, that, you know, you have an AD that's watching. And you have a, a, a director of photography. And you have other actors who, you know, are, who are the stars of the vehicle who are watching backwatch. They go, that was really good. You look great. I was watching the monitor. That looks great. That's, you know, and you're like, oh, good. And uh, on one on one project, the, the uh, it was a co-directed piece, and uh, both the directors were, were very complimentary. But they were just like, we can see that you're a craftsman, and you know, we can. Yeah. not that they could see the craft because we don't want them to see the craft. Yeah. We can say we can tell you're, you're crafting something before you get on film that, that's that's uh, you know playable.
1: I think the, I think one of the hardest things about watching yourself is just there's no mystery. You know, when you watch yourself, you know everything you're feeling. When you're watching yourself on screen, you're like, oh, I feel I, – I assume if, if – if, you know, you might watch like a really cool scene with like James Dean or something, but he, he – during that scene, he could just be kind of on autopilot and maybe thinking about what he might have for dinner that night or how his stomach hurts. Uh, I know? don't know. I don't know about <laughs> actually, like
0: Dean, you know, he was a he, notorious uh, method <laughs> actor, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, watching it. I remember the first time I'd seen like videotape of a performance. This is back before there was you know digital yeah. streaming and and even DVDs. Right, they were they were VHS tapes, and somebody yeah. would give you the VH tape of your performance and. You turn it on, you're like, oh, this, I can't wait to watch this. And then you go, oh, God, is this play this bad? I, it, you know, it you lose all the ambiance of the live theater when you're watching that. And, of course, you never hear your voice the way the audience is hearing your voice just because mm-hmm. of, you know, the structure of the bones of your head and all that stuff. So you're always surprised at the way you, you sound yeah. and... Uh, I don't know, you start second-guessing acting choices that perfectly work, because otherwise hopefully the director would say, that acting choice isn't necessarily working. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you might think of another choice, uh, but you go, oh, was that the choice I made, really? <laughs> well, okay, I guess it worked. Um, I think it's especially hard It's embarrassing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's hard to watch a play on film, I think. And it, there's very... You have to film it, I think, very specifically because you're right, when you watch a play on film, I think you're missing out on a lot of the natural energy that that is created from live performance oh, sure, that you yeah. get from the audience. All but, right, that audience yeah. is
0: there. They're they're they are the they're they're the other equation in that um, in that performance yeah. is the is that live audience. And I think that's the other thing too, you know, the the great thing about going to see live theater versus sitting in a dark th- movie theater with a bunch of strangers it's still communal in some sense Mm -hmm. um but it's it doesn't have that immediacy of the live actor presenting right before you right i mean we're gonna all laugh together in a movie theater the same way we might all laugh together in the live theater experience but i think that laughter again it's it's impacting the actors and that energy is impacting the actors and it, it, it is. It's it's like food mm-hmm. that energy that the audience gives. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, for me that's one of the huge differences between doing that live theater and the, the seeing the movie the movie version of something.
1: Well I think it's a very it's a it's a sense that, I mean, not everyone has maybe, or maybe everyone has it, and I'm just being pretentious, I don't know, but it's a it's a really palpable sensation when you're on stage and you can kind of feel the way the audience is feeling. Like you can get a gauge of what their emotions are at the very moment. Mm-hmm. Like when I did, um, <clears throat> when we did Stupid in here and I was sitting about right here and there was like some monologue where I was like talking to the audience about, they're all the characters in the books my character wrote or whatever, and I'm making that sandwich. When every time I did that, like when I would just kind of pause and I would just kind of, you could feel the way the audience was perceiving you. And it's a really strange feeling because it's, you know, it's just a room. You realize there's a room of people just staring at you, kind of waiting for you to talk. But it's really nice because I, I mean, of course I do. It's my part, but I don't have to. I can mm-hmm. kind of just sit there and they have to wait until I talk. And mm-hmm. But I, I can feel their kind of anticipation. And that, yeah, that, right. Yeah. There is that
0: <clears throat> anticipation that the audience has. And, yeah. you know, again, the... In this space, sixty seats. It's so intimate, mm-hmm. and so that act of talking, and it's meta-theatrical. So you are, in essence, talking to them, yeah. right? And they're waiting to hear what you have to say. And there's a lot of encouragement in that particular play uh, for the audience to talk back to yeah. the to the the characters within the play. But yeah, they're, they, um, you know, it's the thing we talk about in acting too a lot is acting the the idea of believability we talk about oh that's a believable performance and you can't make an audience believe you they know they're sitting in the theater right but the thing that we do or that I try to train actors to think about in that realm of believability is don't think about it as being believable think about it as doing something in such a truthful way that the audience leans in because they are engaged with whatever action you are performing. You are so committed to performing the action and that your behavior is rooted in that action that the audience is engaged with that. And that's where that, I think that nugget of what we call believability comes from. Mm -hmm. They don't really believe you, right? (laughs) They're engaging with whatever the action is and they are either empathizing with it uh, saying oh I feel for this person or boy they're a real jerk and I yeah. hope they lose right yeah. yeah that's where we get that protagonist antagonist uh, thing right um, is that the audience is engaging with they, they hope they're hoping for someone to win they want somebody to lose and they hope that the lovers get together mm-hmm. right or not
1: <laughs> yeah. um, kind of getting near to the end here but uh, do you as an instructor, a director, a professor, do you have a, because I I mean, I've very little experience teaching, but I I mean, I have even working for children's theater briefly, and then in your class as your TA, there have been a few moments where I'm like, I just really connected with someone. And again, the, you know, the whole um, imposter syndrome always comes into play, because a lot of times when I teach people, I just think I'm just some, I'm just some guy what the hell do i know but you know there are moments where you do feel like i have gotten something across and because of my actions someone has improved or developed passion in some way Mm. do you have a particular memory or maybe even several where you really felt like you had a really strong impact on someone and their performance life and their passion for it
0: well of course i always hope that i'm a positive influence on Students, whether they're in my classroom or they've mainly been in a production uh, that I've directed. Um, Well, we had a nice moment yesterday, didn't we, with with Nick? Yeah. He genuinely was like, "I'm a senior. I took this class because I wanted to. I recently had life experience of things that made me kind of crawl into my shell." And thank you to you and to me because we, the activities we did in the classroom, the games we played, the exercises that we've done, um, all that are based in the training that I've received and the training that you've received um, that we were able to share with them. And he, he, I 100% believe that he was genuine, that somehow we added value to his last semester here, that we maybe gave him some kind of mechanism for him to leave a more open and enhanced life. You know, that sounds laudatory, but I I think ultimately at the end of the day, uh, that happens. I had another student come up to me today after our voice class, and I spent a lot of time working on them outside of the class with their sonnet. And that particular student today said, thank you for not giving up on me. It means a lot to me. And I said, of course, we never give up on anyone because what would have happened if people had given up on me right and and i know again going back to my origin story like a superhero if somebody had just given up on me and not invested in me and not allowed me to begin to learn how to develop my talents and help me develop my talent i i would have you know, who knows where where I would have been? I I do credit a lot of my life, literally my life, to this thing called theater and to acting. and a lot of ways, it saved my life. I was I was I was heading a bad path when I was a young man. You know, I was I was doing all kinds of things I shouldn't have been doing. I'm lucky I'm still alive because of some of the poor behaviors I was doing when I was a young person. Uh, all of those Again, all those experiences, good and bad, we take with us and they help us grow in our art, right? Because life experience, there's no replacing life experience for for becoming a better artist, period, but certainly becoming a better actor. Uh, And I have those moments every year, there's somebody or a group of people that know that I've given them something of value which I should be because they're paying a hell of a lot of money for it to come here to the university. Um, but it, it, it gives me great satisfaction. You know, I was talking about regrets not having done this thing and pursued this thing, but I don't make as much money, you know, as a teacher and those types of things, but I got a nice thank you note from a student today. I had that other experience earlier today. I had the experience yesterday where somebody said, hey, you meant a lot to me. You've expressed to me several times that you're thankful for me being a part of your learning process, and that's value. That's more worth more than money, right? Um, So, yeah, and I'm sure there have been times where I've had a student in the classroom, like, oh, he's an asshole. (laughs) Boy, what a jerk he was, right? Uh, And (laughs)
1: Oh, well, we'll finish
0: up. We'll finish up.
1: Well, uh, just to terrifically putt, by the way. Um, but, yeah, just to briefly comment on that. I don't Let's think not I, end on being an asshole. No, no, no. But I was going to say, I don't feel like it's a proper mentorship unless you you kind of the, – the, your like and dislike kind of ebbs and flows. Right. But I think a bit further along the line you realize, you know, the value in maybe things that you didn't like. Uh, you know maybe a moment where you were directing someone and they thought you were being rude or, or, or kind of um, whatever and then but further down the line I you know I, I think any person who is really invested in this and invested in, in taking your direction will see that oh you know that was that was a good lesson you know, or that was a good moment right. that was a good teaching moment
0: well you know one of the things that I try to teach Actors is that they need to one clarify the objective of what they're doing right and then do it and you know I always say do it fully And do it provocatively right the behavior has got to be provocative because that's the thing that the audience is going to engage in So I often look at my role as the acting teacher Is to be the provocateur. Yeah, right um, and, and hopefully I can do that in such a way where I don't humiliate anyone or I don't you know abuse anyone's feelings or those types of things but that I'm there to make sure that I'm going to push you to get you to your best performance at the point where you are now so I can meet you where you are now in the development of your individual talent because really the the question I always get from young actors is, "Do I have the talent for this?" And I'm like, every human being has the talent it takes to be a to to be an actor, yeah. because being an actor is really about being a full live human being mm-hmm. in all the various aspects of the humanity through the form of what we call character, and uh, yeah, that's my job is to try to provoke that humanity to to to. Leash out, and sometimes I know a student has gotten mad at me, and I'll I'll say I'll shut up and I'll say,
1: act the part now, <laughs> and something
0: inevitably bubbles up from that anger at me. And I'm like, see, you can apply that into mm-hmm. your your acting today well i or, think
1: i think different actors handle different styles of directing you know differently yeah. like i grew up playing sports and stuff so the provoking kind of sense of it always connected really well with me I'd, I'd walk out of rehearsal and be like i'd call my dad and be like gosh daryl was really on me today and he was like good you'll be better you know right I mean, it
0: well was, i have a, i have that sports background i do yeah. relate sports and game playing and child's play and how seriously we take that when we're playing anything if you engage in a game and you're not engaging in the game to win then what's the point of playing the game right and that's that that, there's always a game happening in a a play
1: yeah
0: and it's between the characters and maybe it's a psychological game maybe it's a real physical game but there is a game that's being played and are you going to win that game you're going to try your darn best to win that game right and sometimes you win, and sometimes you lose. But you cannot predetermine how you're going to do that. No. You just have to be open and responsive to the other person, and give them back what <laughs> give them back what they're giving to you, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess we'll uh, we'll let them do the rehearsal. They need to rehearse, then. right? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Darrell. I, 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 I
0: appreciate you asking me to be on today, Forrest. Uh,
1: this, you've been on my guest list since the beginning. I thought I'd get a few uh, important people under the. Under the banner of the White Rabbit Odyssey, before I asked you to be on, you know, well, wanted to be wanted to be worth your time.
0: Well, thank you for thinking me
1: as of me as an important person. Oh, of course, you're my mentor. Thank you, Daryl. You're welcome.